Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June too is it's a quick dry. It dries in about 1 minute, lasts for 5 days, and full coverage in up to 1 to 2 coats. Visit oliveandjune.com/perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com/perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This podcast may contain adult themes, strong language and stupid health advice. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to In Bad Taste, where we cast a critical eye over health documentaries and the claims they make. I'm your host, registered nutritionist Pixie Turner, and I'm cardiothoracic surgeon Dr. Nikki Stamp. Now, each month, as you know, we're watching some of the most popular but also most ridiculous health films and sorting fact from fiction over four episodes. We are taking one for the team and yelling at the television so that you don't have to. Now, thankfully, this is the last episode on the 2004 anti-sugar film Fed Up, and honestly, we've had some really interesting conversations and busted some common myths about sugar. And weight bias and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been really, actually, a very meaty film for us to get stuck into, and not just because there's not a mention of veganism in sight, which is quite <laughs> unusual for us so far. This film has given us anti-sugar, weight bias, and personal responsibility, which only leaves us with the the Sith Lord of death and disease, according to this film, anyway. The food industry, big sugar. Ah, <laughs> I I have to be honest. I'm really looking forward to this episode because we have called in reinforcements. That's right. We have got two wonderful guests to give us their expert view on the food industry and food lobbies, uh, and they have some serious wisdom to impart. So we're not going to stuff around on this episode. We're going to get straight into it and. Talk Talk about to start with some of the really interesting claims they make about the food industry, food lobbies, and big sugar and big food in this film. They make a number of very intense claims around how much the various lobbying groups have impacted policy in the U.S., how they've impacted the language that is used in government guidelines, for example, and uh, also in terms of what's appeared in children's school canteens. I was really quite surprised by this one, to be honest. It wasn't something that I knew as much about. I definitely heard of how big the lobbying groups are in the U.S., particular the kind of the meat lobby, the sugar lobby, all of these different groups, because they give considerable money to various publicly elected officials, various senators, and so on. And as a result, they have a huge amount of impact、mm. on the language that's used in policy and what kind of policy passes as well. 
They've even given some really interesting examples of how the Obama administration really tried to do some good work in terms of working with the industry to make some changes. And that that entire campaign ended up being essentially stripped down to move more in exercise. And that being one of the big campaigns they focused on. So there was some really interesting stuff on that that I I found really interesting because it wasn't really something that I knew as much about. And especially all of this stuff that they said about how various food companies can have a big impact on what kind of food is served to kids in school canteens. Companies like Coca-Cola and Pizza Hut having serious stakes in school canteens and what they serve. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I, it's like you, I sort of heard of that before, like in passing, but, you know, I, I did find this really interesting as well. And and I think we've sort of pointed this out a few times now that this is, you know, very US-centric. It's a US film. They're talking about the US food lobby. But nonetheless, you know, I still thought it was, was fascinating. You know, I have to say it doesn't, doesn't really sit right with me that, um, you know, advertising and sort of indoctrinating kids is, is not, I'm not a massive fan of um, for a lot of reasons. Um, I, I think that one of the things that I found really interesting that they talked about, and uh, I sort of looked at this from my own research mm. perspective, is the role of food funding um, research around, you know, what's healthy, what's not. Um, and, you know, again, we're going to talk about this with our, with our guests because they know a lot more about this than we do. But, you know, there was one guy, um, David Allison, who, uh, you know, they basically alluded to the fact that he was basically taking money from big food to say that various things that are generally considered to be not that great for us are actually pretty good for us or something like that. And the poor guy that interviewing him, they, you know, the, the interviewer asks the question and he sort of stumbles and then says, oh, sorry, can you just give me a second to collect my thoughts? And then they kind of focus on him like sitting there in silence and make it look like he's trying to think of a way to weasel his way out of this difficult question. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you poor guy. Like, you know, making no judgment on what, you know, whether or not that's true, whether he is, a, you know, a shill for big sugar or whatever. Um, you know, I, I think that um, it was really, it was just terrible, you know, filmmaking. They portrayed him in a really negative light. But, you know, I think it's also important to say that when you do research, when it's funded by industry or a scholarship or, or, you know, a university or a grant or whatever, that money doesn't go to you. It goes to your university. (laughs) It doesn't, you know, you don't all of a sudden wake up and Coca-Cola's wired like $3 million to an offshore bank account so you don't have to pay tax on it. Um, That's not how research funding works. (laughs) Imagine. But, you know, I, I, I think, you know, again, like any film, they're trying to tell a story and they use filmmaking techniques like that to to kind of portray these the, the the villains in a villainous light and the heroes in a you know angelic heroic they can do no wrong light right exactly and so yes i think that you know if research is funded by a food organization or a lobbying group i think that needs to be taken into consideration when we critically appraise that research with skepticism mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean it's automatically a total write off and what frustrated mm-hmm. me about this was They looked at it in such a one-sided way. They looked at research funded by Coca-Cola, for example. What they didn't look at was research funded by the organic lobby groups, who are huge and who have a lot of power. Research that's funded by nut companies, for example, or by avocado companies, by certain foods that have a particular brand name, whether it's types of apples or types of broccoli, for example. All of these groups fund research as well 
but that's apparently okay because they're the good guys. And that is a bullshit double standard that I will not tolerate. Do you know the double standard that I wrote down in my notes? They're like, you know, big sugar, big food. I'm like, what about big wellness and big health documentaries? Yes. Why? Yes. Why aren't they being scrutinized so aggressive? Oh, no, that's what we're doing. We're scrutinizing them aggressively. But, you know, like it's just, it again, it is such a, a, a weird double standard. The wellness industry is worth so much money. Oh, so much money. So much. And have huge impacts on what kind of things we buy. Like, hugely so. And they're not innocent just because it's, it's wellness. Fuck off. They are absolutely big culprits for a huge amount of bullshit. Agree. Um, yeah, couldn't, couldn't have said it better myself. I, I think um, the other thing that they talk about a lot in this film that that is interesting, and again, I think it's probably something that we kind of agree with them about, is the use of advertising to kids. A bit like you know, feeding kids, you know, Pizza Hut or whatever into their school cafeterias. Um, that you know, advertising directly to children. Um, you know, again, we're going to hear some of this from our guests, but um, you know, that that is also something that. I think it has merit, but again, um, you know, there's there's a lot to sort of dissect from what they've said. We know when it comes to advertising to kids, there is actually some really interesting research that I explored when I was writing uh, my latest book out in August. Please buy it. So kids can recognize that ads <laughs> on TV are actually ads because they're a clear break from what they were watching before. They're watching some kind of program. All of a sudden, everything changes, the music, everything, and they recognize that that's an ad. They recognize that quite clearly. On social media, however, it's quite a bit different because posts by influencers or endorsements by influencers are kind of seamlessly woven in. And so there isn't that same differentiation. This especially applies on YouTube because places like Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, they usually, uh, you have to be at least 13 years old to join to join those. But on YouTube, YouTube has a specific kids section. And a lot of kids watch things by vloggers, for example, and they include mm. advertisements and sponsorships as a result of that. And because it's just woven into their video, kids don't see that as being advertising. They just see it as these people that they like to watch on YouTube are saying that this food is great, that they really like it, and that therefore they then feel they should be eating the same thing. Alongside that, what has now happened is that there is a campaign by the Royal Society for Public Health in the UK, which is targeting influencers specifically saying that influencers need to be more careful about the kinds of things that they advertise on social media, <laughs> which I think is really fascinating because previously, a lot of the efforts on public health, on policy, have been focused around things like the sugar tax, around uh, banning junk food advertisements on the tube, for example, and not so much on social media, but they're catching up now. And that is really quite interesting to say. And what that also ties into is this whole idea that we're subsidizing sugar and that's why we're feeding it to everyone. And I have to say on the flip side of that, there are anti-sugar lobbying groups like Action on Sugar in the UK, for example, which shows that actually it's not just as black and white as that. And also as a reminder, people are eating less sugar now than we did 30 years ago. So if there are really powerful sugar lobbying groups, they're not really working out as well as perhaps uh, people think they are because we're eating less sugar. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, they decide that this means they can shit on cheese. And this very much upset me because they talked about subsidizing sugar and then talked about subsidizing cheese. And I got very upset because they shit on cheese. Leave cheese alone. Leave cheese alone. Right? <laughs> because there's all this stuff about like, oh, you should eat real food. I'm 
technically, if you're going by the ridiculous bullshit standards that certain low-carb groups particularly like to attribute to what is food, what is real food, cheese is a real food. So what is this doing in a movie about sugar? How dare they? It is very, very out of place, but, you know, it's just one of these extra things I think they just like to throw in to, to, to it was, you know, a whole bunch of stuff they were kind of trying to sort of ram together at the end. It felt a bit like they'd run out of bad stuff to say about the food industry and they kind of had to like throw a few extra things in to, to make it to make it look like they're, you know, they're doing a terrible job. Um, do you know, interesting, come back to that influence thing. Do you know here um, there was a, a campaign that was sort of based off a UK campaign on Girls Make Your Move, trying to get women to be more active and play sport or whatever, mm. um, and the government paid influencers to promote this on their social media channels which you know it's the new advertising you can make it that what you will but those same influencers who were promoting the healthy lifestyle of physical activity were also promoting alcoholic drinks <laughs> Smooth. anyway you can probably gather from all this that we have some questions about what's been said in this film, both from the perspective of what's actually been said in this film, is there any relevance or you know realism to what they've said, but also from the perspective of people who are not in the United States, i.e. us. So we have spoken to a couple of experts and we'll kick off with uh, we'll kick off with the Aussies first and I'm going to introduce you to the very very wonderful Dr Emma Beckett PhD who is a registered nutritionist nutrition scientist and NHMRC grant recipient now for those of you outside of Australia and outside of research that is the pinnacle of research grants so you could say that Emma is kind of a big deal also and this is one of the things I absolutely love about her, she wears clothes with food on them because she's a nutritionist. I think that's so adorable. Um, But she also has this amazing tweet pinned to the top of her profile. And I'm going to read this verbatim because I think it really hits home that she is, uh, she's not here to, to bullshit us. So her tweet says, as well as that food and nutrition PhD, I also have a Bachelor of Biomedical Science with honours in Immunology and Microbiology, a Graduate Diploma in Clinical Epidemiology and a Master's in Science Management. And yes, I've worked with food companies, but no, they didn't buy me. If I wanted to sell my soul for money, I would have started a bullshit supplement ages ago. So let's have a listen to what the very brilliant Emma Beckett has to say. Emma, you are an accomplished researcher. That is one thing for sure. And one of the claims that this film makes is that food industry sponsorship of nutrition research is a bad thing and that researchers are making big profits from it. Can you tell us a little bit about the reality of this? (laughs) Well, if there's big profits to be made, I certainly want to know where I can pick up my check because I'm not making (laughs) any of them. Um, And I always find that claim a little bit ironic when it's coming from people who are selling something themselves. So people Mm. selling fad diets or books or or documentaries and exposés. I mean, they're making money out of this as well. So if the, the logic is we need to Um, not trust anyone who's making any money out of anything, um, then there's probably not anyone left uh, that you're going to be able to trust. Mm, Um, And I would say probably a minority of uh, publicly available nutrition research is funded 
uh, from industry. So most of the funding for the publicly available research comes from the government um, or internally Mm -hmm. from universities. Most of the research Mm -hmm. that the food industry is doing is proprietary and kept behind uh, closed doors. So uh, these days there's very strict rules about what you need to declare um, if you're doing industry-related research. Um, And with the internet, it's very hard for anyone to get away with um, not disclosing one of those potential conflicts when they're publishing work. Yeah, same in medicine. You know, occasionally we get, you know, um, we get something similar. But you're right; it's it is hard to to sort of hide that away. Um, just when, just for for people who don't know, when when we get a research grant, I think people misunderstand where that goes. That doesn't come to our bank account. That goes to a like a trust account um, that that funds the research. It's we're not we're not getting a salary from you know in my case, you know, a pharmaceutical com- company or a device company, and you're not getting money from you know, Coca-Cola directly into your bank account. It's going to our universities to fund that research. Does it does it actually make a difference though? You know, there is this perception that uh, if you uh, if your research is funded by a, a company with a vested interest in an outcome, you know, how, how hard is it to sort of say actually, you know, this product is crap or it doesn't work or, you know, how hard is that to do as a researcher? Well, I think it's important to remember that when industry comes to a scientist for a collaboration or for them to do some some contract work or however the arrangement works, they're coming to us to, because we're the expert. Um, and mm-hmm. they, if, if they wanted a, a yes man or if they wanted a, a preconceived answer, they could do that themselves. They wouldn't need to involve us in, in that. So most of the work mm-hmm. I've done with industry, they've been asking me questions like, uh, you know, a cereal company wanting me to explain the latest evidence for whole grains and health or a dinner products company mm. wanting me to explain the the latest ev- evidence to them on on vegetables and and vegetables being healthy and when you say to them well no actually you've you're taking it too far with what what you want to say there you probably shouldn't in good faith and based on the evidence put that claim on the product in my experience when I've said that to companies they haven't done it um, so they are okay. coming to us for our expertise um, and you know, there'd be a lot easier ways to, to get a yes man than, than to come to a scientist. <laughs> That's very true. Um, so in Australia, we um, we have our food guidelines, our nutrition guidelines like everywhere else. What, what role does the food lobby or corporate entities play in the development of our food guidelines here in Australia? Okay, so I won't deny that there are food industry lobbyists. That's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Um, but looking at the situation, Australia versus the US, for example, much uh, less of an issue here than it is there. But what the industry lobbies influence are things like labelling rules or taxes or subsidies, advertising mm-hmm. regulations, that kind of thing. Um, they're not directly influencing the Australian Dietary Guidelines, the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating or the Australian Nutrient Reference Values. So those are our official guidelines about what people should eat for health. Mm -hmm. So those Mm -hmm. are set by experts in the field based on the current body of evidence. They're not politically driven. And I think the Mm -hmm. other important thing to remember is there's lobby groups for all of the foods. Uh, The healthy foods have lobby groups as well. There's a fruit and vegetable interest group. There's a whole grains interest group. There's a dairy one. It's not just about the the junk foods. Um, And probably what we need to do as a nutrition and dietetics industry, instead of lamenting the influence of these lobbyists, uh, we probably need to make more of an effort in getting involved in the lobbying ourselves. Uh, As Mm. scientists, we tend to to sit back and try and be impartial and say science isn't political. Um, But if the other side is lobbying, then, you know, we probably Mm. need to get involved in it as well. 
that's such such a good point. Um, so the other thing uh, in Australia, um, people who are listening from overseas might not know this, but we have uh, the health star ratings because reading labels can be really challenging. So we have a, a five, out of five star rating to help people make decisions around the food that they buy. Are these sorts of rating systems, and in particular our our one here, health health star ratings, are they robust? Are they influenced by big food or, or lobbyists? I am so torn on the health star ratings um, as a nutrition professional. <laughs> there is some good evidence that show that they work, that they they do influence people to make healthier choices. Um, mm-hmm. And there is some good examples of self-regulation within the industry. For example, Milo um, mm. took away their health star rating. It used to have a very high health star rating on there. And then it was uncovered that that rating came from the milk that's added rather than the product itself. And that health star rating would only apply mm-hmm. if you may made the, the Milo in the glass with the milk to the exact specifications on the tin. And we all know no one respects the milk to Milo ratio in real life. Oh, I don't. <laughs> exactly. So they took they took that away um, from consumer pressure um, because it is voluntary yep. to, to use the Health Star rating. And I am always really pleasantly surprised when I'm in the supermarket and I see a discretionary food, a junk food, um, that has a, a 0.5 or a one-star health rating mm. because uh, the companies don't need to put that on. They could they could not use the health star rating. So to me, uh-huh. that's very the company's being very upfront, saying this is a food for joy, this is a sometimes food, um, this is not a health food. And I, I'm always impressed when I see that. But there are really big issues with the system. So one thing I don't think people realise is that the health star ratings has categories. And this is probably Mm. where industry was involved with putting pressure on in the development. So there's different Mm. categories and you can't actually compare products between categories. You can only compare Mm. within categories. Um, But most people don't know what these categories are. So you can't compare, Mm. say you're looking for a snack, you couldn't compare cheese to yogurt to a muesli bar because dairy is its own category, cheese is its own category outside of dairy, and then muesli bar falls into the all other products category. So it might look like uh, yogurt is less healthy than a muesli bar, but that's because it's being compared to your other dairy products, including milk. Um, So that could be very confusing to people. And there's also, um, well, actually not including milk because there's also a dairy beverages category. Um, There's a dairy beverages category and a non-dairy beverages category. So you can't compare soda to a pre-made smoothie uh, to a a bottle of flavoured milk. So that can be really confusing. Uh, for people and I don't even remember slash understand those categories all the time so I'm not sure how the average person is meant to. So I guess in summary those sorts of ratings not awful not perfect yeah. <laughs> I think would be the way to sum them up. Yeah I mean they're a good indicator but you don't want to make your your food and nutrition decisions based on one kind of indicator alone mm-hmm. um, and you know there's other examples of where it's going to be confusing the um, the recipe based products uh, they used oh, yeah. to be allowed to make their rating based on the the final meal so if they're saying you know add this powder add some uh, water and add a whole bunch of fruit and oh, so, so a whole bunch of vegetables and not very much meat they could give it a very high health star. That, those rules are changing this year so that now those ratings are on what's in the packet on its own 
which mm. seems a bit more legit, but you don't eat mm. what's in the packet on its own. And some of those packets mm. are pure pasta, potatoes and meat uh, when, mm. when you make the final recipe. And some of them are very nutritious, high in vegetable mm. meals. So for me, that's a real gray area that makes it a little bit confusing. And the fact that it's voluntary as well, I think makes it a little bit con- confusing for consumers because does no stars mean uh, that it's unhealthy or does it just mean that that company hasn't invested in putting it on the product? Emma, just last question. What do you think of the term big food? I I hate the term big food because it gives people this idea that if a product is coming from a small company or it's being marketed to them by an individual like an influencer, then it's not, it doesn't come with the same risks and that that company, because it's smaller, does have their best interests at heart. So you have the same risk, whether it's a big food company or a small food company, that they are leveraging a nugget of truth in the science to twist Mm. their own marketing claims. So don't trust people just because they're a small company, really look into to what claims they're making. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That is such good advice. Well, thank you so much for chatting to us. Um, I hope it clears up some of the questions um, people have around the food lobby and particularly as it relates to to the situation here in Australia. You are a superstar. No problems. Thanks for having me. I have to say, I absolutely love Emma's tweets. I love all the dresses that she wears. And so this was a really interesting interview to listen to. So that was Australia. So now moving over to the UK, where I spoke to Jenny Rossborough. And Jenny Rossborough is a public health nutritionist who has a really interesting career that has spanned various different areas with a particular focus on public health and food policy. I know very little about food policy. And I was writing about it in my book. And so I recruited Jenny to really help me a great deal with this. And she has been absolutely phenomenal in terms of helping me to understand this topic. She's just amazing. Yeah, we love Jenny. I'm going to say no more. Just listen to what she has to say because she knows her shit. Hi, Jenny. 
I'm very excited about this because I am not an expert in policy in the slightest, but you are amazing at this kind of stuff. You know so much. So I'm really excited to ask you a little bit about some of the claims that they make in the documentary because they're very US focused. And it's really interesting to see how this compares to the UK. So in particular, the movie claims that the food industry has enough power to dictate what guidelines say and to change any proposed guidelines as well. And I'm wondering... Does the industry as a whole have that kind of power here in the UK as well? Well, thanks for having me. I love this topic, so I'm excited to talk about it. Um, I would definitely say that the food industry has influence. Um, There is a lot of lobbying that goes on. But I would say that there is a fair amount of transparency here in the UK. So, for example, Public Health England, who design our um, public health nutrition guidelines, are quite known for engaging with industry and when they um, developed the more recent Eat Well guide they were criticised for it for engaging with industry but their stance is always that industry should be part of the solution. So I think there is there is definitely a role on a very practical level for industry to have a say but it's how how it's done I think Behind the scenes lobbying feels very different to being round the table with a group of NGOs, so non-government organisations, health charities and Public Health England. So as an example, there's um, we have reformulation programmes in the UK. So one of them is a sugar reduction programme and that requires industry to reduce gradually the amount of sugar in their products um, over time. So with the development of those cutoffs and those guidelines, there was everyone around the table, and that was Public Health England who are leading the programme, lots of health charities and organisations, and then the food industry as well. So in those circumstances, everyone has an opportunity to feed in. Um, usually the, the NGOs, like I said, would be holding industry and Public Health England accountable. So, so that can be helpful. And I think where industry do sit on certain committees, board members, they always have to um, declare conflicts of interest as well. So that is all quite transparent. Where we come up with new food policy, they're usually government consultations, so public consultations. Um, so, for example, if there was going to be one on food labelling or a new nutrient profile model, which determines our, what we would consider to be healthy or less healthy. So industry would be able to feed into that, um, as would all other organisations. So th- th- there is that level of transparency, which is good. But there is that lobbying element as well, that behind the scenes lobbying. And I think an example that really um, sticks out to me from my experience is when we were designing the soft drinks industry levy. So essentially a tax on, on drinks which contain more than 5% sugar. Um, and that would be in terms of writing to number 10 or writing to the HM Treasury or hiring big budget, huge PR companies to come up with lots of campaigns, which then, you know, so some of, some of the lobbying actually was kind of filtering um, messages to the public um, via social media, mainstream media that were actually incorrect. For example, job losses with the soft drinks industry levy, which wasn't ever the case or going to be the case. But even then, we do have a system where of freedom of information requests. So any of those emails that go back and forth, for example, between, say, Public Health England or government and food industry or an NGO or charity, um, it can be published. You can request that and it can be published. So, yeah, if you were to Google some of those big companies <laughs> and the sugar tax, I'm sure that would keep you entertained for an evening. There's probably, you'd probably find quite a lot on it. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, there's a role for an industry seat at the table to some extent if it is very transparent but obviously yeah there are there are lots of other kind of conversations that are going on behind the scenes as well 
Mm. So it seems that perhaps one of the key differences between the UK and the US is that we do have greater transparency here and it's more obvious what's going on and it's less feels less sneaky perhaps. Yeah, and not to say there's not um any of that sneaky behavior that goes on. I would I definitely wouldn't rule it out, but but I do think that there is a fair amount of transparency where they're not, you know, completely ruled out of the conversation. And, you know, the question then is also how much do they influence it from being part of those discussions? Like how much are they influencing? And luckily with the soft drinks industry levy, that was something that, you know, I always thought at the time, the NGOs, the charities didn't have the PR budgets that the soft drinks industry had, but it still worked out in in public health favour. So that's obviously promising. But yeah, I suppose no one will really know unless you're inside government just the extent to which they they are impacting. Mm. I mean, speaking of kind of sneaky tactics, one of the things that they also talk about in the movie is how various large food companies and brands like Pizza Hut, for example, is an, is an example they mention. They sponsor school canteens. And so you'll see that various days of the week in school canteens in terms of what food is on offer is sponsored by companies like Pizza Hut. This was quite shocking to me. And I don't think I've seen anything like that in the UK, but I do recognize that my school was a private school. And so that might just be a different experience. Have you come across anything like that in the UK? The marketing side of things is a huge concern because it's just kind of insidious. Like it's, it's not always that obvious unless you're you're looking for it, but that doesn't mean that it's not having an impact all the time, um, which we know it does. Marketing usually has an impact. And you know, I think that the the millions of pounds that the industry spend on marketing speaks for itself. But we also have the evidence to back up that it does have an impact. And so, you know, we, we shouldn't that that feels the Pizza Hut in school canteens that feels kind of really obvious. I wouldn't expect to see that in in schools in the UK. Um, we have some regulation, for example, that prevents like billboards advertising um, within certain radius of schools. But there might be some things that aren't captured still in in the the, the marketing restrictions. For example. If industry were to produce food education materials in schools, I couldn't be confident in saying that they weren't allowed a logo on. So that might be something that's quite subtle. I don't know if that would be, you know, a, a common example within a school, but that kind of thing. There are lots of loopholes. Another massive loophole when it comes to sponsoring is sports. Sports sponsorship is huge and it, it hugely targets children as well. Mm. There's no restrictions here yet and there should be. So a, quite a big one here was Cadbury's and Premier League and um, sponsoring Premier League or also National Trust Easter egg hunts. That's for children. <laughs> or And I think they actually pulled, might have pulled out from that one, I think, um, more recently. And then we had an example not so long ago of English cricket and KP snacks. So um, yeah, it was a fam. It was a family kind of version of, of cricket. So it was very family friendly, targeting at children as well. And all the the sports stars were dressed as different crisp packets and <laughs> nuts and things like that. Which is, I mean, these sports stars dressed as giant crisp packets. I feel like that's on one level quite impressive but completely immoral. Like, I, I just think in, at, at this point, to think that that is okay, is really shocking to me. So yeah, there's lots of loopholes that definitely need tightening and, and is what is kind of being campaigned for at the moment. Like you said, there are some restrictions that are now being enforced in the UK. I think one of them, one good example is perhaps the the tube advertisements that you can no longer advertise certain food products on the tube or throughout uh, Transport for London. I mean, are there any other kind of restrictions that particularly focused on children's exposure to industry advertising that we're seeing here? 
A few years ago, I think around 2017, we saw a slight tightening of the rules where the rules that we had for TV advertising, so, so to restrict um, the adverts or foods and drinks high in fat, salt and sugar on TV, were extended to online and in some other kind of areas as well, like cinemas. And this is where the billboards outside schools came in. So that's positive because as soon as, you know, a lot of the time you've been told by advertisers or marketing um, professionals or food industry that actually they've, they've reduced advertising to children, but they haven't. They've just shifted it elsewhere. So a lot of it was moving from TV to online. So that was positive. But still, in this area, there's usually loopholes, which are that um, if 25% or more of the audience are young people, then the restrictions would apply. But if less than 25% were, then they won't. Now, 24% of, you know, a few, quite a few million listeners or what? That's still a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. That's a lot of people still. So what you'd see is that 6 to 9pm kind of gap in the evening where you'd get lots of those families, those hugely popular family programmes where they'd just be really saturated with food ads, unhealthy food ads. And that's because that's a loophole. So now the regulation is to try and extend the marketing restrictions to 9pm but also an equivalent online. So it's not just about TV anymore. Knowing where, you know, the screens that children are picking up is a lot of handheld ones. It's got to be much more across the board. Mm. Do you think it'll make a difference? Yeah, I think it will make a difference when it becomes like a new normal. I think at the moment it's so inconsistent everywhere. And I think that we have to, on a practical level, consider kind of baby steps as well um, in terms of, you know, progress being made. So I always like the idea that it doesn't have to be perfect a policy doesn't have to be perfect for it to still show some progress. Um, it might take quite a long time because what you're doing, doing is establishing a new normal. And, you know, this isn't to say that children or adults should never eat these types of foods. That's not what it's about. But it's about the fact that we're constantly influenced to do it. So um, we're probably consuming them more frequently, for example. And so ideally, if we were in a you know an environment where this marketing wasn't kind of targeting all of us, really, all of the time, then, then that's where we want to be. And hopefully, eventually, because I think that they're running out of arguments, if I'm honest. <laughs> uh, but people are still very much arguing that it's a terrible idea. But, you know, that's that's to be expected. That's always going to be the way, isn't it? This is so interesting. And this is such a this is such a fascinating topic. Because the problem with a lot of these documentaries is that they are so focused on the US that they don't seem to recognize that other countries actually exist. And so I think it's really important to have this kind of conversation around, you know, what's happening in other countries as well. But I do want to ask one final question. And this is the claim that the movie makes about when fat is removed from food products, it is always replaced with sugar. Is that true? See, that's interesting because my understanding of that is that there's really no good evidence to back that up. Not to say there wasn't some cases, you know, where it didn't happen, but I think it's sort of been this this concept that people have run with and that and, and carried more weight really than it deserves. So in a lot of the products where, where saturated fat was reduced, it wouldn't have even be feasible to replace with sugar. Like so, I don't I don't think we could say that that would happen across the board. Um, it is it is a consideration for certainly the reformulation pro- programs that we've got going on here now in the UK. So, for example, it might be called a sugar reduction program, but very much within that protocol, it will be that the energy density and the saturated fat should not increase as a consequence. So, yeah, I think there's there's lots of ways for industry to kind of be creative about about managing that kind of reformulation. So it isn't that it isn't you know considered as a factor. But, yeah, I think that that definitely that line got more weight than was really reflective of what was happening. 
I'm so glad you say that because that is that is exactly what my thought was as well. It's like, this just seems a little bit too blanket, black and white to be true. I can totally see how sometimes that can happen. Yeah. But there's a certain point at which fat and sugar are just not going to do the same thing in food, like in the slightest. Yeah. I remember saturated fat in crisps, for example, reduced massively. We're not all going around eating really sugary crisps. <laughs> I don't think. Um, so yeah, some of the, some of the biggest things for a reduction in saturated fat, which is wouldn't have been feasible for sugar to be a replacer there. So yeah, I'm saying no. Yes, good. Thank you so much for for taking the time to to answer these questions. This has been absolutely fascinating. Yeah, so good. Thanks for having me. Ah. Uh. She's so good. She's so all over this, isn't she? I learned so much from both of those interviews. Um, and again, it was just such a lovely thing to get um, the the perspectives outside of the US and also the perspectives of people who aren't, you know, there to sell a documentary, who are actually in the thick of it, who genuinely, genuinely know what they're talking about. So I think that was amazing and really ties up the film nicely and what we've been talking about nicely so thank you emma and jenny yes thank you and yeah i've got nothing else to add other than it's time for our fuck counts so i think we've hit a bit of a a a bit of a snag with the fuck counts um and we've been talking about why this is okay so in case you don't know we're using the fuck count as a measure of outrage or how ridiculous a film is. And we started off pretty high. We started off in the 20s with Game Changers um, and then we kind of dropped in Gerson. Well, I dropped in Gerson, but mine were replaced by notes to report this film to the relevant authorities because it was so dreadful. And we've dropped again this week. We've dropped again this week. So mine was only seven. But to be fair, mine was nine. And most of those were in my notes on sugar addiction. Actually, pretty much all of those were just in that section because that's the bit that angered me the most. But I think this reflects also the fact that there were some things that we really agreed with here. It is. And I also think, sadly, it reflects the fact that we're getting desensitized to these films. (laughs) We'll start watching them for fun next. Oh my god! Oh no, 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 no! I can't possibly do that. That is that is that is too far, Nikki. It is too too far. It is too far. I've, there's always one person who takes it too far, and then someone gets hurt. You know. But I have to say, you know, we like to give a little bit of a confession every now and again, like we admitted to falling for I Quit Sugar and all that kind of stuff. But I'm going to tell you right now, and I'm telling you this, Bixie, as well. I will not tell you, and I will not tell anyone on the podcast. If I accidentally on purpose watch a film for one of these films for entertainment, (laughs) it's not going to happen, but just in case. Anyway, so the next question is, what's next? We're going to do something slightly different next month. And I am excited about this. We are going to be talking about the movie Vaxxed, which is an anti-vaccination documentary that is an absolute pile of trash. So I cannot wait to destroy it. I am very, very looking forward to this. But in the meantime, please don't forget to leave us a five-star rating because that's how people will find our little podcast. And, of course, tell your mates and subscribe because then you just know when we're there. We're there with our new episode and it's amazing. In the meantime, if you have questions or comments, you can get in contact with us on email, inbadtastepodcast at gmail.com. We really, really want to hear from you, um, including, you know, tell us what films you want to see from us as well. As always, of course, come and see us on our socials. 
Pixie is at Pixie Nutrition and I am at Dr. Nikki Stamp. All references and relevant links, including where to find Emma and Jenny on social media, please go give them a follow because they're wonderful, will be listed below in the show notes. We'll see you next time. Yes, we'll see you next time for some anti-vaccine bullshit. Woohoo! <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.